following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Well, good morning, everyone. Glad to be here. Um, would you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1? Uh, if you're using the Bible in the seat in front of you, it's found on page 807. And while you're doing that, I'll just tell you briefly where we're headed this morning. Uh, we are going to be exploring the connection between Matthew's account of Jesus' birth with a prophecy some 500 years uh, prior to that by the prophet Isaiah. To do that, I'm going to bring us back to Isaiah's time when the kingdom was divided into the northern and southern kingdoms which were at war with one another. And we'll look at Isaiah's prophecy, which on its face appears to have nothing to do with predicting the Messiah's birth. We'll also explore God's faithfulness to his people throughout history and prove that he is God with us. And finally, we'll make a couple of applications to our lives. El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty. Jehovah Ra, the Lord is my shepherd. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. El Olam, the everlasting God. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. I have always enjoyed trying to understand the various names that God uses about himself in the Bible. I also happen to love Christmas, and so there's one passage in particular that I've always appreciated. It's the one where Jesus' name is given as Emmanuel. So let's read together Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, back in August, the elders uh, took turns preaching through some various aspects of Jesus' ministry as uh, it was told to us in Matthew's Gospel. And Chris kicked off the series by reviewing Jesus' genealogy, with Matthew, um, which Matthew introduces as we discovered that Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, was from the lineage of several kings of Judah. Well, today I want to explore some of Israel's history as it relates to one of those kings in particular, King Ahaz, whom Isaiah addresses in the passage that we will read shortly. Most of this history is found in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. To do that, though, we're going to need to back up and paint the picture uh, of, of all of these events from even earlier so that we understand what's happening here in the nation of Israel in its context. Most of us know that God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt with his mighty outstretched arm. He used Moses, his servant, to lead them out after nine plagues could not convince a stubborn, hard-hearted Pharaoh. It finally took the tenth plague, the 
death of every firstborn in Egypt for Pharaoh to admit defeat and effectively bow down to Yahweh and let Moses' people go. After 40 years of wandering in the desert, living in portable tents, eating manna and quail, and learning to worship God his way, the Lord finally led his people into the promised land, as we just studied together in the book of Joshua. And we learned that not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. At last, Israel was given rest from war and was established in the land of their inheritance under God's direct leadership through the priests. They were 12 tribes with no single king, except, of course, for the king of the universe. However, it wouldn't be long before they started complaining. They rejected God's leadership and demanded an earthly king so that they could be like all the other pagan nations around them. And despite his warnings of catastrophe and misery under such an imperfect leader, the people continued their demand, and God granted it. As promised, their very first king, King Saul, was, was exactly the kind of selfish, power-hungry, God-dishonoring king who abused his people. However, both out of compassion for his people and in accordance with his eternal plan, God called out David, a shepherd after God's own heart. He was Israel's greatest king and successfully united the 12 tribes in spite of his own dark sin. But God promised that there would always be a king of the lineage of David on the throne in Israel. Well, unfortunately, uh, David's son Solomon, as wise as he was, became reckless and did not follow the Lord in the way that his father David had done. And the kingdom was torn from him and divided into two kingdoms. So here is a map of, if you can see it from there, just get the idea. There's two kingdoms. You can see the Dead Sea there, which is a long, skinny body of water down towards the bottom. To the west of that is the kingdom of Judah. And then north of that is the kingdom of Israel. And you can see where it's divided there. And then the other thing to point out in there is in the upper right corner, it, again, you probably can't see it, but trust me, it's the nation of Syria. And that's going to become an important player as we go on here. So the northern kingdom, which kept the name Israel, consisted of the tribes of Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, Simeon, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, Dan, and Ephraim. The southern kingdom of Judah was made up of Judah and Benjamin. And similar to our own civil war, the northern and southern kingdoms often warred with one another. Well, over the course of several generations, both tribes had many different kings. And so as I was going through all this, I realized that you kind of need a scorecard to keep track of everybody here. There are a lot of characters here. So this will hopefully help us to identify who keeps straight, who everybody is. And uh, we'll find out here in a minute who has good eyesight and who doesn't because this was pretty small. I don't know if uh, it had a chance to grow any since the first service. So we'll see. Um, <clears throat> so over the course of these generations, they had many kings. And in Israel's case, again, the northern uh, kingdom, not one king was righteous before the Lord. Every single king was an enemy of God and led his people away from him toward the pagan gods who they never knew and could not save them. In Judah's case, they had a mixture of good and bad kings. Uzziah was a relatively good king who reigned in Judah for 52 years. During the time of Uzziah, there were at least three successive kings in Israel. Remember, they were all corrupt men who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The last of these uh, to come to power during Uzziah's time was Pekah. 
Remember that name. Also, during the time of Uzziah, in his last year as king before he died, Isaiah the prophet was commissioned by God uh, to preach words of warning and comfort to the southern tribe of Judah. So he was never in Israel. He stayed in Judah. But incidentally, Hosea was a contemporary prophet of his who was sent to Israel, which in my book must have been a harder job given uh, Israel's history of zero good kings and uh, great apostasy. But don't get me wrong, Judah wasn't exactly jumping to obedience under Isaiah's words either. And so Uzziah died and his son Jotham became Judah's next king. Jotham was also a relatively good king and for the most part worshipped God properly during his 16 years of rule in Jerusalem. During that time, Pekah was still king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And Pekah was from the tribe of Ephraim and ruled from Samaria. And this will become apparent as we go along later. And again, while Pekah was still king of Israel, Jotham died. And his son Ahaz became king of Judah at the ripe old age of 20. Well, Ahaz did not walk in the ways of his fathers. And he followed after pagan gods and introduced pagan worship customs into the temple of Yahweh. Let me just say briefly, this is a horrendously bad, evil, and wicked idea. He burned his sons as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations around them, whom the Lord had driven out from the land back in um, Joshua's day. He sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and in every, under every green tree. Pekah, perhaps sensing that this new king to the south was a little inexperienced, decided this is a good time to go attack Judah. So Pekah made an alliance with Syria's King Rezin to attack Judah unprovoked. They besieged Jerusalem, but they could not conquer it. However, Ahaz was still scared to death, so he cried out to the Lord for help. No, actually, he had long since rejected God, so he cried out to a guy with a funny name, Tiglath Pileser. Really kind of fun to say. Tiglath Pileser was the king of Assyria, not to be confused with Syria. See why we need a scorecard here to keep track of all this? Um, so uh, Tiglath Pileser was another pagan king, and Ahaz even tells him, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. How much better would it have been if Ahaz had addressed God in this way instead of a pagan king? Not only that, but Ahaz also took some of the silver and the gold from the temple and he sent it to, uh, to the king of Assyria as a gift. Faithless Ahaz is the king to whom Isaiah is sent with a message. So turn with me now, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 7. And again, if you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's found on page 566. But Isaiah chapter 7. So Isaiah had been commissioned at the end of Uzziah's life. Uzziah's son Jotham reigned well for 16 years, but Isaiah records no prophecies from during Jotham's reign. Now Isaiah speaks during Ahaz's reign. Isaiah comes to King Ahaz as a result of the crisis facing him. These two formidable kings, Pekah and Rezin, who have arrayed against him. So let's read Isaiah 7, 1 through 17. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook 
as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So, except for one sentence in verse 14, this does not at all seem to be telling of the birth of Jesus. Well, let's take a deeper look. We note in verse 2 that when Judah, the house of David, learns of the alliance between Syria and Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were tossed and shaken and in great disorder and confusion, wavering and uncertain in their counsels. This is caused by their weak faith. They no longer know Yahweh, and so they have no confidence in him. They have made God their enemy, and they don't know how to make him their friend. God warns in Leviticus that for those who hold on to their sins, the sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword. This is certainly the case here, as is often the case in our own lives, when we do not repent of our sins and believe the gospel. In verse 3, the Lord tells Isaiah to meet Ahaz, who is not seeking God and didn't send for Isaiah. God often speaks comfort to those who are not deserving of it and not seeking it. He ordered Isaiah to bring his son, Shear Jashub. Now, Shear Jashub's name means a remnant shall return. This is meant to be encouraging to King Ahaz, Ahaz and his people. And curiously, God tells Isaiah to meet him at the end of the conduit of the upper pool. Ancient cities, including Jerusalem, used conduits to direct water to various places in the city. And perhaps Ahaz was there deciding how to protect this important part of their infrastructure or how best to destroy it if the city fell so that the invaders would not have use of it. 
In any case, it's likely a place where Ahaz was fretting over the situation before him. And Isaiah is to tell Ahaz to calm his heart and rest in the strength and protection of Yahweh. He refers to resin and Pekah as these two smoldering stumps of firebrands that they would soon be extinguished. They were not raging infernos, but dying embers in the bottom of a fire pit. And Ahaz should not fear them. Verse 7 says, Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. And there it is, right there. This grace from God should greatly encourage Ahaz and all of the house of David. He reminds Ahaz that in his sovereignty, Rezin has been placed in power in Damascus to be king of Syria and nothing more than that. In Yahweh's sovereignty, Pekah has been placed in power in Samaria to be king of Israel and nothing more than that. In fact, he promises that within 65 years, Ephraim would be completely shattered as a people. And incidentally, this very thing appears to have happened exactly 65 years later when the Assyrian king took Israel captive. God would not abandon his people to ruin when he holds such a blessing, specifically the blessing of a returning remnant in reserve for them. But he further warns Ahaz to be firm in the faith or else he would not be established. Isaiah, in verse 11, goes on to graciously offer to Ahaz to ask for a sign, any sign he'd like, to validate this promise. I mean, he could have gone the route of Gideon, right, who put out the fleece and all that. So he could have kind of made up anything he wanted. He knows Ahaz will not just believe his words, so he promises a sign of Ahaz's choosing to bolster his faith. See again how gracious God is, even to those who are evil and unthankful, to offer such a proof of his goodness. Yet Ahab slaps away God's outstretched hand. In verse 12, he claims this pious position that he will not test the Lord. Well, he's done nothing in his entire life other than test the Lord. This is pure hypocrisy on his part. In reality, he has already made an alliance with a pagan king and has made arrangements with his army and his gods to depend on them for deliverance as if it would be tempting God to do the very thing that God told him to ask for. So just plain silly. And so Isaiah turns instead to the entire house of David and appeals to them. Is it too little to weary men that you should also weary my God? So God goes ahead and gives them a sign anyway. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He describes this event and notes that before the boy has reached an age where he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, these two smoldering stumps would be taken care of by, king, by the king of Assyria, though probably not in the way that Ahaz exactly wanted. Wait, cue the record scratch sound here. This Emmanuel would be a young boy born of a virgin in the days of Ahaz and would usher in the defeat of Israel and Syria and the salvation of Judah? What is going on here? All the Christmas songs and Matthew's gospel say Emmanuel was all about Jesus. But Jesus isn't even going to come along for another 500 years. Well, this brings us to Matthew 1.23. After walking the reader through the history of Israel, through the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew tells about the virgin conception with Mary and about the dream Joseph has, explaining that his betrothed's pregnancy is by the Holy Spirit. He says she will bear a son, and they shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. How does Matthew understand this passage from Isaiah as related to the Messiah? Well, uh, excuse me, Isaiah's writings seem disjointed to us and appear to have nothing to do with any kind of prophetic calling of Messiah Yeshua, Jesus Christ. But remember, Isaiah's book is partly poetic. It is mysterious, especially to our 21st century English writing and reading style. The book of Isaiah is a set of discourses and songs rather than a historical chronology of events in the time of Judah. However, Isaiah does record many prophecies regarding future events, including the captivity, including the birth of the Messiah, including the reign of Messiah, and the last days. Now, the language and construction of Isaiah is somewhat difficult for us to understand, but it seems that this is a double prophecy. And this is true of much of prophecy in the Scriptures. There is often the near and the far in, in prophecy. So to Ahaz, Isaiah was speaking words of comfort and encouragement about the near, assuring him that he had plans for a remnant to return, as evidenced by the name of Isaiah's son, Sher Jashub. He was telling him that before Sheer Jashub reached the age of accountability, which was descriptive of an age at which any boy would generally know right from wrong, Ahaz would see the destruction of these two kings. Praise God. So Isaiah's son, Sheer Jashub, is not Emmanuel, but rather a sign of Emmanuel, the child who would come, bearing all the fullness of God to rescue Judah and the whole world. And don't forget, even Isaiah did not fully understand what the Holy Spirit was telling him. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11 says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So most prophecies, especially concerning the coming deliverer Jesus, are not crystal clear. And it's only through the Holy Spirit and the historical benefit of hindsight that we can look back and say, oh, that's what God meant. Nonetheless, the original hearers should have been encouraged by this word, even if they did not fully understand it. So how does this point to the Messiah? In the midst of this impending attack on Judah, which in reality was God's judgment for their rebellion against him, God was encouraging Judah in general and King Ahaz, in particular, to hope for their promised deliverance. God would cause even a virgin to conceive a son to save them from this invasion. However, the virgin birth is the far part of the prophecy. Of course, it would not happen for another 500 years, and Isaiah and his original hearers likely would not have recognized this. Nonetheless, before this child Emmanuel reached the age of accountability for boys, the salvation of his people from the invasion of sin would be underway. Just like Sher Jashub was a tangible sign that God was going to bring a returning remnant of his people, Emmanuel would be the tangible sign that God was directly with his people. All throughout Scripture, there are demonstrations of God being with his people in a tangible way. Of course, in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. But even after the fall, God was with his people, though usually in types and shadows. He sent his messengers to Abram 
and Sarai, calling them out of their homeland and their pagan uh, pagan culture to follow the one true God. He was with Isaac, and he wrestled with Jacob, calling forth the 12 tribes of Israel in the first place. He was with Joseph in his trials and used his brother's schemes against him to save all of them, though generations later they became slaves in Egypt. After 400 years, God was with Moses in the burning bush, calling him forth to lead his people out of Egypt with a mighty deliverance. After the Exodus, God was with his people in the cloud and in the fire as he led them through their wanderings, and on Mount Sinai, and later in the tabernacle, between the cherubim above the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Moses pleaded with God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. God was with them. In Joshua chapter 5, Joshua meets the commander of the army of the Lord who will go into battle with them. And there are countless other examples. But this prophecy seems somehow different. John begins his gospel with these proclamations. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. And in Hebrews chapter 2, the author tells us that Jesus had to be made like us in every respect. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Again, God is truly with his people. So how do we apply this? How do we take this and, and apply it excuse me, to our lives? Well, out of great love and patience for his people, Judah, God stayed his hand from judgment for turning their backs on him. Instead, God sent the prophet Isaiah to warn Judah that like their brothers to the north were about to experience they too would be judged by another unrighteous nation and carried off into exile if they did not turn back to wholehearted worship of their creator and redeemer, Yahweh. Just as God was loving and patient toward Judah in this regard, who absolutely deserved his just wrath, so God is loving and patient toward us, who also deserve his just wrath for our sins. Romans 2.4 tells us that God's kindness and forbearance and patience are meant to lead us to repentance. He has given us the same gift, and he, as always, initiates the offer. It is not God who rejects us. It is we who reject God. And this is how God accomplishes this through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was always with God, and in fact, is himself fully God. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For in him, 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In coming to earth as a baby human, growing up as a human, and suffering and dying as a human, we have a high priest who is fully able to sympathize with our weaknesses, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In Emmanuel, these two natures are brought together, God's righteous holiness and man's fleshiness. Emmanuel is the mediator who is fit to lay his hands on both. This is good news. Without the name Emmanuel, God with us, he would not have been Jesus, Savior. Because he is Savior, he is bringing God to us, which is our great happiness. And he's bringing us to God, which is our great duty. So Emmanuel is much more than a reference to a baby at Christmas time, more than a great song title. It is the name of the God of the universe who loves us enough to come down to earth to be with us, dwelling with us and bridging the eternal gap between a holy God and sinful people falling woefully short and deserving his just punishment. By the light of nature, we see God as God above and around us. By the light of law, we see God as God against us. By the light of the gospel, we see God as God with us. For those here who do not know Emmanuel, God with us as your Savior, I implore you today to recognize your sin, turn from it, and believe that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. In other words, repent and believe the gospel. Don't be like Ahaz, who relied on his own abilities and cleverness and his alliances with others, and who refused to submit to God and allow him to rescue his people. For those here who do know Christ and are already part of his church, remember that God is with you. Remember to cry out to him as your heavenly father. Remind yourself of the truth of who he is. El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty. Jehovah Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Shalom, our God is peace. Emmanuel, God who is with us. Let's pray. El Shaddai, you are our righteousness. Thank you for sending us your one and only son, Emmanuel, to be with us and to save us from our sins. Emmanuel, thank you for your faithfulness to finish the work your father gave to you to bring us to him. Counselor, Holy Spirit, thank you for helping us today to understand your word, which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you, O oh God, for being present with us, incarnate among us, reconcilable to us, at peace with us. May we throughout this Advent and Christmas season always remember your entry into time and space from all eternity to make for yourself a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession. May we, during this season, when the whole world is singing our songs, proclaim your excellencies who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Amen.